0: When I first started looking at Hosea, I thought, no, this can't be the passage I'm supposed to be preaching on. So I thought, I'll do something different. But I kept having to come back to this passage, which is, is quite, a, quite a dark passage in some ways, but also tremendously full of light and glory. And the background is really unrequited love. God is wanting to pour his love on his people. And his people are saying, No, there are other things we want to give priority to. And the book is about judgment, too, because God says, if you're not going to follow me, then judgment will follow. But it's also about how that judgment was overcome by love to the uttermost, because God loves his people and God is determined that his people will return. But there are some hard lessons And it's not easy. We sometimes think of God as being omnipotent. And he is. But what this book shows is that God is also vulnerable. And it's difficult to tie those two things together. How can God, this almighty, this tremendous God, be vulnerable? Well, it's because he's made himself vulnerable. If you love anybody you're going to be vulnerable. If you're you're not vulnerable, if you're not concerned, then you don't love someone. And God makes himself vulnerable because he loves the people that he knows are going to reject him. Israel was God's child, his precious, priceless possession. Think of all that God has done for him. But he rebels because he wants something different. So the kingdom splits into the northern king particularly turns from God. They've got these two centers that I mentioned. And they gradually took on the gods and the style of the nations round about. They didn't forget Jehovah, as I said earlier, but they mixed in all sorts of other things. So they worshipped Jehovah. But not in the way that Jehovah wanted them to worship, but in the way that suited them. And gradually, gradually, they turned away from Jehovah. But God would accept no rivals or second-rate worship. There is only one God. And there is only one way to worship God. And that is God's way. And it's a lesson sometimes we need to learn because... We like to think that we can manipulate God into doing things our way. But God is God. There are also concerns with morals and their politics. It was sort of intrigue and dodgy dealing. Sounds very much like today, doesn't it? There's all sorts of stuff going on. If we look at our own country and we see what's going on in the in the sort of world of sex and the world of politics and the world of morals, and if we look carefully, we can see so many of those things creep back into the church and that's one of the reasons why we have so much difficulty in making our position clear because when we say things the world can look back and say oh yeah but you do it as well and there's a lesson there for each one of us but what we do see above all is god's love in a remarkable way and we see god's pain and god's grief it's a difficult concept isn't it god in pain God grieving and yet that's what this book shows us and God is in pain and God is in grief because of the way that his people react to him and respond to him. The spirit now in the New Testament times is grieved by our lack of devotion, by our carelessness, by our unloving behavior. And that doesn't just mean that we're sinning or whatever. What it does mean is that we are causing God grief. And if we're God's loving children, do we want to cause God grief? But it also reveals the consequences, even, perhaps especially, for the children of God. It's interesting that judgment begins in the house of God is a New Testament Teaching, not an Old Testament teaching. It's Peter teaching that judgment begins here with us. And it's a salutary thought, isn't it? We have this God of love, but he's a God of righteousness. And he doesn't take sin lightly. But that's the black side of it. But let's get on to chapter one of Hosea. And when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife. Um, Carol mentioned the Jerusalem Bible. And in the Jerusalem Bible, which is a more literal translation, it says, go, to, go take to yourself a whore and the children of whoredom, For she is a whore. And that was how God saw his people. Because they had strayed from him. And they had deserted him. Okay, in, in their heads... In their headlines, he was still their god. But when he got down to the nitty-gritty, when he got down to their daily living, they left him behind. So Hosea marries a harlot and bears a son, and his name is Jezreel. And Jezreel is interesting because Jezreel is the place where Jehu, a previous king, had put to death and destroyed the houses of Ahab and Jezebel. Who you remember were particularly evil king and queen. But God had commanded him to do that. So why is God now criticizing the children of Israel for doing what he told them to do in the first place? Well, it was because they did what he wanted them to do, but not in the way that God wanted it done. They did what God wanted them to do, but not in the way that God wanted it done. They were totally unscrupulous in the way that they dealt with the, the people. And Jehu's heart was wrong. Because whilst at the one hand he appeared to be doing God's will, on the other hand he was worshipping at the golden calf. And so it's not just that we do God's will, our motives are important. Do you remember Jesus? Just sort this. Do you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount um, says. I forgot what I was going to say now. Let me just check, let me just check it up. Because I think it's, it's, it's just an, an interesting illustration. Matthew 6, if I can find it. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. Because God's looking at your heart. When we do our Christian service... God's looking at our hearts. And Jehu was doing God's will. But God was looking at his heart. And God judged not just Jehu, but he judged the people. Because the people blindly followed their leader. And they became as guilty as their leader. And each of us is responsible for our own, our own lives. We can't say, well, the leader's told us to do this, therefore it's not my responsibility. Each of us has to find our own way. And so the children of Israel had followed a leader into sin, and God judged the whole nation. It's so easy to be taken up with the instruments of worship and forget the God at the center of worship. Wasn't that a wonderful service? Wasn't that wonderful worship? Well, did it actually lead us to God, or was it a wonderful emotional experience? Do these things lead us to God? Do our services on a Sunday lead us to God? That's the question. When we go from here on a Sunday morning, do we honestly say to each other, it was good to be with the Lord, to be with each other, and to have the Lord in our service, in our presence? Because that's what worship should be about. It should be God-centred. So they were taken up with the instruments of worship, but they forgot God at the centre. And then, and then God says, because of Israel's sin, Israel's bow is to be broken. Her, pa- her power is to be removed. And then, a little while later, Gomer has another child. And interestingly enough, when she had Jezreel it's clear that it was Hosea's child but the next two children Hosea isn't mentioned so the first child was Hosea's whose were the second and third, we don't know but it doesn't say it's their Hosea's, whereas the first specifically does so there's the second child and we find the second child is named Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should forgive them. So has Israel passed the point of no return? Has her life become such that God is now saying, enough is enough? And then there's another child. Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, And I am not your God. So God does not overlook sin. And God is not for sharing. So it's a very bleak picture. But then the mood changes dramatically. And we find yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted. In place where it was said to them you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. And they will appoint one leader and will come out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. So God is saying, look Israel, you need to change. And if you don't change, there are consequences. But I'm going to provide a way for you to change. And for a way for you to be restored. But then just having given that light to the people the mood changes immediately again. And we find that just uh, judgment is, is on the horizon. And we find that Israel is to be punished and then restored. But the punishment is to ensure the restoration. This isn't God punishing his people for punishment's sake. This is God punishing his people so that they will repent and turn and they will be restored. But will she learn the lessons? Or will she continue stubbornly to resist the Lord? Things are very bleak. But God has other ideas and he changes the picture dramatically again. So you've got this twofold thing going through the book. God saying, Judgment will come, change and repent, or else. And then at the same side, he's saying, however, I am going to provide a way to ensure that you have forgiveness. And so we go to, to, to verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. And it starts on the black side, really. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the baals She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But she forgot me, declares the Lord. She forgot me. So, God's going to take the initiative. But first is this warning. And we need to ask ourselves whether sometimes we're bedazzled by the world and all its enticements. Remember what James said. This is New Testament again, this isn't Old Testament. James, talking to the church, says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? And sometimes we can be so taken up with this life. The world isn't sort of going to the pictures and doing all things that people don't do or Christians. The world is an attitude. It's the way that we live. It's what controls us. It's what guides us. It's what we give ourselves to. And do we give ourselves, forget Sunday, but during the week, do we give ourselves to the Lord? Or do we give ourselves to living and to all the things that the world does anyway? Because that's really what worldliness is. It's like living like the world. And that's what these people had done. They'd taken upon them all of the gods and all of the, the ways of the world, the nations round about, and they had forsaken God. So there's this, 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 this warning in, in verse 13. I will punish her for the days, etc., etc. But then immediately there's a change of, uh, uh, of direction. And verse 14 says this. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. And he's going to lead her into a desert so that they can have time together. So God takes the initiative. He's going to allure her. He's going to win her back. He's going to demonstrate how much he loves her. So there's warning and there's allurement and encouragement. And then a bit further on, we find that marital relationships are going to be restored and even further, it looks towards the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. And so, beyond, beyond uh, the, the people of Israel being taken away, God looks forward and he sees in the future a day when everything will be restored. And that day is ushered in by the cross. And we know that, they didn't. All they knew was that God was promising them, repent and I'll forgive you, and there are tremendous blessings to follow. Refuse to repent... And the Assyrians are coming because it was the Assyrians who were going to bring God's judgment. And the Israelites knew that they were beginning to become a power and they were on the march. So they had these two choices. But there's no easy solutions to this. God could have used his omnipotence and said, I'm going to change you all. But he didn't. What God said is, I'm going to love you, but you must respond I'm not going to force you to do anything. I'm going to allure you. I'm going to plead with you. I'm going to love you. But you have to respond. So then we turn to chapter three. And it's just the first three chapters I'm looking at really. And Gomer has left Hosea. She's left her husband. And she's found another lover. She's still an adulteress. And she's left him. And the Lord said to, to, to Hosea, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. They, they, they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Imagine this. Imagine your Hosea. You've got this wife who is a prostitute, who's continued to prostitute herself all the while during your marriage. She's had three children. You only know that one of them's yours. She's left you. She's made your life hell. She's made you a laughing stock. And she shows no sign of changing. And God says, you're to go and love her. Because that's how the children of Israel have, uh, have treated me. And you're to love her as I love the children of Israel. And it shows something of God's love, that it didn't matter what the children of Israel did, he was still pleading. If you read some of the other later chapters, you'll find God pleading with the children of Israel to return. He loves his people, he wants his people to return, but not at any price. He will not receive us at any price. We like to think, you know, that there's a famous French person, I can't remember who it was now, who said, you know, Well, God will forgive. That's his business. That's what he does. Well, it ain't that easy. There are no easy solutions to this. God loves, but God demands repentance. So Gomer is to love his wife. And he's to model this on the love that God has for the Israelites. And it shows something of the the depth of God's love. But then the final ignominy. Not only has Gomer got to win his wife back. He actually has got to pay the lover a price to get her back. He's got to buy back this wife who's treated him so disgracefully. He's got to buy back this wife. And he has to scrape together all the money he can to do it. It's costing him everything to get back this wife who has treated him abominably. And that's a picture of the cross. It costs God everything to win us back because if we really know ourselves then we know that we have treated God so often abominably but he still loves us so much so that he sent his son to die on the cross but there's also a price that Goma has to pay she has to demonstrate her repentance and change lifestyle before marital relations can be restored in, um, I think it's verse 3, where it says, you are, to, uh, you are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, but any man in the Hebrew includes himself. So he's not going to have intimate relationships with his wife until she demonstrates a genuine repentance. There is a cost to us. And that cost is repentance. That cost is to demonstrate to God that we really have repented of our sin. And we really want to return back into his love and into relationship with him. So there is a way back for the children of Israel, but it involves discipline and hardship. They are going to go into exile. A clean break is necessary with their old life. They can't take their old life with them into the new life. A clean break is required. The marriage has to be renewed. The Lord will triumph. So for both Gomer and God, love is an extremely costly venture. It costs both of them everything they had. In the the case of Gomer, it cost him all his wealth. In the case of God, it costs him his only son. And the question we need to ask ourselves, I guess, is how do we respond to God's love for us? And how conscious am I that my life affects God negatively, that I can bring grief and distress to him? Does that worry me? It's an interesting question. Perhaps tell us where we really are before the Lord. Does it worry us? I just want to look briefly at a New Testament story. Um, and um, it's it's the, the one we read from the book about Ephesus. But, um, Ephesians is quite interesting because in uh, chapter one of the book of, Eph- of Ephesians, God says this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not given st- I've not st- stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the, Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. And he prays that their eyes will be enlightened. And then in chapter 3, there's that fantastic prayer that God will really deepen their love, so that they love God with, with, with real depth and reality. And the second thing which is interesting about the Ephesian church is that, almost certainly, the Apostle John was one of their leaders. And the message that John gave them every day, really, was little children, love one another. So love is is a key both for Paul, who was the one who started the church, and for John, who continued it through. And you can imagine John's surprise when he gets the the letter in Revelation, because it was the same John who got that letter. And I just want us just to to think about this this message, and then just flick back to a verse in Hosea, which fits into it. And he's writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus. He's writing to the church. And he says, I know your deeds. You're really hardworking. You're really persevering. You can't tolerate wicked men. You won't accept falsehood and, 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 and lack of truth. You've persevered, endured hardship." And you haven't grown weary. And you hate the Nicolaitans who were this, nobody knows quite what they were, but clearly they were a sect that, that did something that, uh, that, that God was particularly uh, unhappy with. And they, 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 they were very much in control of, of making sure that didn't happen within their church. So there are so many things about this church that were, were really, really great. Really hardworking, really persevering. Really wanting to to, to do God's will. But then God says this. I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. And then he says, if you don't change, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Well, not many years later, the Ephesians church ceased to exist. ceased to exist and the passage or the, 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 the words in uh, Hosea which I've lost uh, chapter, chapter 6 say this and I think this is a key in many ways to the way that the Israelites um, lived in, 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 in idolatry and so on Chapter 4, verse 4, sorry. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore judgment came. Their love was like the morning dew, like the early mist. Here one minute, gone the next. And how easy it is To sing these fantastic songs we've been singing this morning and really to believe them and to feel them and to know that we love the Lord. And yet, tomorrow, almost to forget that God exists and to live as though He doesn't. And so, there's this challenge to each one of us is my love like the morning mist?